This episode is part of a lecture series on Simone de Beauvoir, brought to you by me, Lisbeth Schoonheim, and Ashika Singh. We are asking the question, how are her writings and her activism relevant to us today? Simone de Beauvoir may be known for her landmark publication of The Second Sex and for her contributions to the French existentialist movement. But, as this series will show, there is so much more to be discovered in what she said with regards to phenomenology and various forms of oppression and resistance, and in what she did as a Marxist, a feminist, and as a supporter of anti-colonialist struggles in Algeria and beyond. In this lecture series, we will have a number of scholars presenting on Simone de Beauvoir's ideas and her life. We want to understand how her oeuvre might provide tools in making sense of 21st century issues and events. These presentations were part of the Simone de Beauvoir conference hosted by KU Leuven's Institute of Philosophy, which took place from the 2nd to 4th of June 2021. More information on the conference can be found in the description of this lecture series. These presentations were recorded during an online conference, and so you might find some issues with the sound quality. We hope that you enjoy this episode, and do stay tuned for others over the course of the next weeks. Our next uh, speaker is uh, Anna Mascalan, who is a researcher associate in the Center of Youth and Gender Studies at the Institute of Social Research in Zagreb. She received her PhD from the Department of Philosophy at the Faculty of Humanities and Social Sciences at the University of Zagreb. And her areas of interest include gender and utopian studies, theories of body identity, transhumanism, pop culture, cyberculture, and issues of social justice and discrimination. She's the author of a book titled Woman's Future, the Philosophical Discussion on Utopian Feminism, and co-author of Identity and Culture. The title of her talk today is, I didn't ask for it, Women of Former Yugoslavia versus the Invisibility of Rape. Anna, the screen is yours. Thank you very much, Nidesh. Uh, I would like to thank the organizers for their effort in creating such a, such a nice virtual platform for discussing philosophy of Simone de Beauvoir. Um, also, thank you for having me. Uh, I'm relatively new in the field of uh, Beauvoir studies, so please keep in mind in the Q&A section that I'm not going to be as capable in interpreting her philosophy as, as, as much as I would like to. Uh, but I will tr try to do my best and compensate by being as honest and precise as, as possible. Today, I will be uh, talking about the Balkan version of Me Too movement, using Beauvoir's feminist philosophy as a theoretical foundation and an intellectual background. I will also talk about three distinctive features in the movement, resignation, anonymity, and the backlash. Since the movement, the movement is still in motion, I plan to finish abruptly and with a cliffhanger, concluding on the hope that everything will turn out just fine. I didn't ask for it, or Nisam Trajo, a Facebook page, was opened in January this year. It was initiated by four former female students of the Academy of Performing Arts in Sarajevo, Bosnia. After hearing the shocking rape testimony of a famous Serbian actress, Milena Radulovic. Let me just give you a little bit of context. 
Milena and several other women reported to the police that they had been sexually harassed or raped, some of them for years, by Miroslav Mikalekic, the famous owner of an acting school in Bel Belgrade they all attended. Let me just say that this prestigious acting school for children, officially called the thing of the heart, one acting lesson cost up to 60 euros, which is an extremely high price in a country where the average salary is 470 euros. But the parents of Mikalexic's students did not object to prices as they felt that the right values were being passed on in his, in his school. For example, the girls had to come in skirts and the boys in formal shoes. Their hair and nails had to be neat. They had to read one book a week. They went regularly to the theater and every lesson began with the prayer, Our Father. So when the female students complained about Alex's inappropriate remarks and behaviors, their parents usually responded that he was just doing this to strengthen them and prepare them for the cruel world of directors and producers. Milena always changed everything and possibly nothing. It is still very, very early. So right now, Mika Alexic is charged with committing nine offenses involving rape and sexual abuse to the detriment of seven women including one minor. He still did not confess to his crimes. And I believe that he and not small part of society is firmly convinced that no crime has ever been committed. This is a place where I would like to invoke ideas of Simone de Beauvoir at everyone's most familiar level. In her book, Second Sex, under idea of becoming a woman, a constant lifelong process of alienation or fathering is implied, with actual violence as a frighteningly effective way of keeping said process alive. In such an environment, paradoxically, violence becomes a tool of proving who deserves to be higher on the human scale, who becomes a subject, and who stays something less than a subject. This masculinist ontology is followed by a masculinist epistemology that implies the interpretation of reality in such a way that it serves to maintain existing gender power relations. Or in the words of Beauvoir, I quote, the representation of the world as the world itself is the work of men. They describe it from their own point of view, which they confuse with absolute truth. The end of quote. Such an epistemology, on the one hand, obscures the vision of men who, as a consequence, do not question the origin of their privilege. It also silences women, making them completely devoid of solidarity with other women and slow in recognizing the need for a social change, a need for a revolution. In other words, at the wider social level, violence against women, especially sexual violence, is still not recognized as a systemic, structural, and all-pervading problem. And sometimes it is still not recognized as a problem at all. One aspect of this can be seen in the fact that in Bosnia, from the perspective of the law, rape can only happen with the use of force. The word for rape in the Balkans is silovanje, meaning just that, the use of force, signifying that women who do not fight back are not being raped. One day after Milena Radulovic went public on January 18th, Facebook page Nisam Trajila opened with the hashtag Nisisama, or you are not alone. Four administrators invited women to anonymously share their similar traumatic stories in order to draw attention 
to what they have what, what they have experienced and thus change the atmosphere in a society where any form of violence against women is enveloped by prejudice and tacitly approved, supported, and encouraged. Although at the beginning, among the first to speak were the actresses and women who had been working in the public eye. Over the span of, of 24 hours, the site became a place of testimony of many, uniting, uniting women from once war-torn countries, Serbia, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Croatia, Kosovo, and Slovenia. What happened next, media described as opening of Pandora's box. In just two days, the site published thousands of shocking tests of sexual harassment and rape, whose victims were mostly girls and women. Perpetrators were usually men in positions of power. The violence often took place during high school or college, sometimes even within educational institutions. And it often had a status of a public secret. Everybody knew about it and couldn't care less. As you can see so far, I didn't ask for it. It is more or less a su successful extension of the global Me Too movement. It inherited a number of features of the sad movement while displaying some specific ones. Dependent on the socio-cultural and political context and heritage of the region. The latter is grounded in the complex per per permeation of the socialist attitude towards women's rights and sexual violence, the unresolved traumas of mass wartime rapes and the contemporary experience of the threat to Balkan masculinity. Three specific features that I will talk about in more detail are the resignation, the anonymity, and the backlash. I would say that one of these distinctive features of I didn't ask for it movement is the pervasive feeling of resignation. Many women confessing their stories could not help but to feel resigned with the situations they, they, they were in. Although resignation naturally follows women's destiny, Bova would say that women because of their historical situation are doomed to resignation. This specific kind of resignation I would like to talk about has a strong socialist taste. Croatian feminist philosopher Gordana Bosanac understood socialism in Yugoslavia as something she called an inaugural paradox a political ideology that declares something realized even though it is not even close to it. Good example of this is gender equality. Socialism promised gender equality, proclaimed it, and then gave up on it. Especially gender equality that had to be achieved in the intimate, private sphere. Unlike socialist philosophers like Fourier or Engels, unlike Simone de Beauvoir, Yugoslav ideologues did not recognize that the battlefield for women was within the family, which could also be seen in the fact that in Yugoslavia, marital rape was never understood as such. As a consequence, women felt that they could not and still cannot count on the institutions that should provide help and protection, the law enforcement, the legal institutions, and social welfare centers. They also do not trust them believing them to be disingenuous, patriarchal, and corrupt. Strongly, strongly connected with the lack of trust is a huge emphasis on anonymity. Most of the women did not want to identify themselves, did, 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 did not want to identify themselves or the perpetrators, sending their testimonies to the administrators through the private channels. All the reasons for the anonymity can be traced back to the lack of trust 
in the institutions. I don't think that this is the whole story. Many women not only but themselves as well. Here, uh, here I would like to recall the Miranda Fricker's useful notion of epistemic injustice, referring to those forms of unfair treatment that I quote, relate to issues of knowledge, understanding and participation in communicative practices. Fricker, as you probably know, differentiated between hermeneutical injustice and testimonial injustice, where she said, I quote, that hermeneutical injustice occurs when a gap in collective interpretive resources puts someone at an unfair disadvantage when it comes to making sense of their social experiences. Well, testimonial injustice occurs when prejudice causes a hearer to give a deflated level of credibility to a speaker's world, word. For many Balkan women, anonymous speech was the first cautious step after a centuries of, while, of silence. Many women wrote that it was only other people's testimonies that revealed their hidden, never uttered, never, never fully understood trauma. And when they finally wrote it down, they were painfully aware that many are not going to believe them. Another reason, both for anonymity and for resignation, came from reality of war rape crimes. And this story, as you know, is far too complex and far too painful to be told in just a few minutes. During the wars of the 1990s, the female body became a battlefield over which biological tactics of warfare were applied, especially the rape of women in the name of nationalist fascist retaliation. As you probably know, between 20,000 and 50,000 people, mostly women, were exposed to sexual abuse and rape in Bosnia alone. Because of the war and because of the events that followed, Balkan women know that in this part of the world, rape, even when no one dares to question it, goes unpunished. And the victims often rejected by their families and forced into silence by their own nations. War rapes did not just victimize women, they also provoked a strong patriarchal sense of shame that awakens with something considered property was being defiled. In this same patriarchal sense, nations were shamed as well, especially in the cases of rape, rape camps, where women were held on, until the late, sta late stage of their pregnancy so the children would inherit their father's ethnicity. During the wars and after them, Balkan women were forced, some of them in this suicidal act of complicity and at the cost of their own humanity and sanity to hide their triple or quadruple victimization or their multiple othering. In the meantime, their voices were taken over by their nation states, usually for a political purpose of gaining power and leverage, which is why many women do not trust those that pretend to speak in their name, and which is why many women, when they speak, choose to stay anonymous. Few days after it was opened, the I didn't ask for it Facebook page was falsely reported and blocked. So Nisam Trajula Facebook group and web page were opened, promising women's support and safety. By that time, social media backlash had strengthened considerably, being dominated by intimidating, vulgar, and misogynistic attacks. The first of these attacks appeared immediately after the public testimony of Milena Radulovic and came down to the infamous, infinitely repeated sentence, you were asking for it. 
There were also clickbait the headlines describing rape as a sex scandal or affair. Articles problematizing the biography of women who spoke about sexual violence or writing complete fabrications. There were also fake news and conspiracies discrediting the victim. And this is where again, Beauvoir comes to mind, especially regarding the case of Jamila Bupasha. Beauvoir described the case in her Le Monde article, starting with the famous sentence, I quote, the most scandalous thing about the scandal is that you get used to it. In her article on this young Algerian woman that has been tortured the French army in Algeria in order to get her confession, Beauvoir suggested the idea that rape is a punishment for the women's claim to legitimacy. Sexual violence again becomes a tool directed against all those women who do not agree to be just flesh and reduces, reduces them to that same flesh. Among these women, the ones who dare to engage in public affairs, who dare to be seen, actors, politicians, and journalists are especially detested since they call into question the gender norms and myths of masculinity and femininity as strictly separated and placed each in their own sphere. The small but important example of what I just said is a creation dictionary where for decades, the synonymous word for a public woman was a prostitute. I would also like to recall Beauvoir's essay, Brigitte Bordeaux and the Lolita syndrome and her explanation of the reasons French public disliked this beautiful and, and talented actress. Like in the Jamila Bupasha story, Beauvoir in Brigitte Bordeaux essay identifies the collapse of the myth of femininity understood as a force of nature sexual and instinctive, childish and capricious, but in the same time submissive to the patriarchal morality and power. That collapse happens, especially in the movies of, of Roger Vadim, where Bordeaux is shown rejecting those I quote, safe values, vain hopes and irksome constraint, end of quote. There she refused passivity, immobility and complicity in a word, accessibility. As a consequence in her real life, Bardot was forced to face hate and boycott and her public image had to be beautified with the stories of her purity, honesty, and love. Balkan actresses faced a similar destiny, but with the reversed image. They're in that way, uh, I believe more true than Vadim's construction of uh, this subversive fem Bardot femininity. It is not the movies that make them despised, but their public personas, which are fundamentally different from the angel, devil, prostitute characters played in the movies. Balkan actresses are young, emancipated and educated women, often looking, living and thinking in an unconventional way, not asking permission for their choices. In a culture where an actress is still sometimes considered to be just a step from a prostitute, women who choose that career choose to not go with the flow, to be passive, immobile, complicit, and accessible. And that is what irritates many. The strong backlash should also be put in context of the strengthening of nationalism and religious extremism accompanied by the renewal of tradition and patriarchy in gender relations after the fall of Yugoslavia. The result, as the philosopher Adriana Zaharievich concluded, was the emergence of a specific patriarchal capitalism on our European semi-periphery. 
the repatriarchalization of gender relations during the last 30 years has brought the enthronement of so-called family values, the renovated women's prison for the 21st century, as adequately named by artist Tanya Yurichan and Ivana Ivkovic. So this, this, this prison does not only mean huge amounts of unpaid or poorly paid reproductive labor of women, but also the enslavement of the body, which becomes a commodity of patriarchal capitalism. In that kind of world, and, and I would like to paraphrase Jennifer McQueen's Wednesday sentence, women's bodies become a vehicle of someone else's desires. Also, not forget Beauvoir's sentence from the second sex claiming, I quote, because man is a sovereign in this world, he claims the violence of his desires as a sign of his sovereignty. Women finding the, their voices in Nisam Trajwa movement threaten some of these freshly restored myths thus provoking a, a strong backlash. One of them was, like I already mentioned, the myth of a family as a holy community headed by a righteous father whose function and power are then transformed into the professions of priests, doctors, and teachers. The idea that, that perpetrators of violence were those trusted men playing the role of holy fathers has shaken not just the established understanding of sexual violence, but the established justification of power over others by alleged moral superiority of ones holding the power. Second myth, the myth of femininity, activity, and complicity was, like I said, also disturbed, being followed by the crisis of the myth of masculinity, especially Balkan masculinity. It is true that Balkan masculinity was historically deeply connected to nationalism, militarism, and sexism. But it is also true that in the words of Sanya Blagojevic, I quote, transition of the 90s has produced a situation in which the largest number of men are those who do not, who do not enjoy patriarchal dividends or enjoy them, but to a small extent. Both men and women have been largely instrumentalized in the war transition project and represent the losers of the transition. There is a gap between hegemonic masculinities, the model, models of masculinity that dominate the media and which are, which are key to re patriarchalization and re-traditionalization and the real life of the vast majority of men. In other words, Balkan men have been othered as well. Ironically, their othered status did not make them necessarily sympathetic to women, especially not to those educated, privileged, and socially networked women who were the only ones who dared to tell their stories non-anonymously. That is why Nisam Trajala movement, just by the fact of being too similar to Me Too, provoked all the old socialist sentiments understanding feminism as, as bourgeois and the new sentiments of being considered a slightly stupid, slightly ugly, and very neglected European child. So where are we now? In the meantime, the movement of institutional and individual intention on a transnational level, gaining huge support for men. And here is the picture that was sent by our Belgian friends from the Young Feminist Europe platform. The Bosnian Angels Agency for Gender Equality has announced that in 2021, crisis centers and sexual violence will be opened in major cities. Academies and colleges in ex-Yugoslav countries for various platforms for students to report abuse or harassment in just a few days. First reports have been made 
naming the abusers, and by the end of January, there were hundreds of them. Public campaigns, lectures, and ed educational videos were launched, blogs, open letters to governments, and thousands of newspaper articles were written. We are now at, at, at a time when the burden of action shifts from women's groups to the law enforcement and to the conventional political and legal institutions that should take concrete steps to eliminate or alleviate the problem of sexual violence in the Balkans. In other words, we are in a moment when men in position of power have to decide about taking some of the power away from men in position of power. Like I said, cliffhanger, thank you. Thank you very much, Anna, for this talk and, and for bringing this testimony uh, to this conference. I think it, it's a, an important supplement and resonates very much uh, with the previous paper, just in a different cultural location. Uh, so we have time for questions, uh, more than 15 minutes. Um, so I encourage you again to type a Q or any other letter in the chat box, and I'll give you the screen. Question from Lisbeth. Go ahead, Lisbeth. Thank you so much for this talk and thank you so much for showing how Me Too is not just an, uh, uh, an American project or whatsoever, but it can actually create this counter-hegemonic moment because it, it very closely dovetails to movement within each specific uh, location. I have a question. So, of course, I was thinking of Diana's talk of two days ago, right, about counter-violence. So I was wondering, do you think that this is... a, a, a does this call for counter-violence? Does this call for direct violence in the way that Diana expounded that? And then maybe as a, as a counter question or a question related to that, what is the, the status of the state? Because I completely understand the role of the state in actually sanctioning these crimes, right? But there might also be a failure of the state to, to do so, actually. So I'm wondering... And also reinscribing that relationship of dependency by victims of rape with regard to the state, right? So might counterviolence here be a way to short circuit that very patriarchal dependency of victims of sexual violence on the state? Just be very curious to hear your thoughts about that. And thank you very much for your presentation. Thank you very much for your questions. I think they're very interesting. Um, I was thinking about counter-violence uh, last few days uh, a, a lot. Um, and uh, the subject of counter-violence actually is very, um, let's say it's very close to the heart. Um, and I'm not saying close to the heart, uh, let's say close to, to my imagination since I, I have a PhD in feminist utopias. So I was doing a lot of feminist separatist utopias where there is a counter-violence is something that happens, you know, in, it, it goes so far, and I think I can, it goes so far that sometimes even uh, uh, have, have its end in, in some kind of a war of the, of the sexes, you know, separation. Um, so I think that in, in the Balkans, we're so far away from any kind of resistance of that type, you know. And this is why I was... I was actually vexing you so much with this story of resignation, you know, because I think that uh, uh, right now in this moment, I think that women need to find their voice first, you know, and then they have to find a way to connect with, with other women, you know, because this is something that, that is still, I'm not sure if 
maybe maybe I'm maybe I'm uh, maybe I'm too negative, maybe I'm too pessimistic. But I think that we have so many steps before this this um, stage in our politics, in our actions that would be because counterbalance. I think that it um, it it understand there is some kind of solidarity. There there needs to be like a a group of people, some kind of a community with shared interests and shared understanding of their reality. And right now, people are missing some of the most, let's say, simple, more simplistic understanding of what is happening. Um, I was very, um, for me, it was very important for, for, for me to put on my PPT presentation the fact that, that Simone de Beauvoir was actually translated in Croatian before, yeah, five years ago, you know? Uh, uh, to understand the problem 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 of rape and uh, sexual violence, people should all know about Simone de Beauvoir, you know. And then, and then I think that we can uh, talk about solidarity, talk about connecting, and talk about some kind of resistance that can be violent or not. So I'm not sure if I answered your question, but I tried. Uh, and regarding your other question. Um, one of the, let's say, one of the weaker points of my presentation is the fact that I was putting all the states, ex-Yugoslav states, in one big basket, treating them as the one. And there are differences. Uh, there are legislative differences, political differences. Um, and of course, in Croatia, as a part of the European Union, some things are better and some things are safer. And, and uh, actions were already made, you know. In some other countries, um, still nothing happens in, in, a, in a, let's say, substantial, substantial way. But yeah, everything is on the politics, because I think that women's groups are not, they are powerful, but, but not enough, you know. They are still, that is why I, I said that they're still being considered bourgeois. And there, there, there is this thing that I have to share with you, this Croatian president, he's not, He's not a stupid person, you know, because you, you expect some somebody on that political well, level not to be stupid. But he said that um, that he actually um, that, that, that that he that dislikes this conversation about me too, about raping, about things, because this this is something that does not concerns him. You know, this is something that some rich women on powerful positions are actually talking about, and he should he he doesn't want to. He doesn't. He doesn't care about that problem, you know. So, so, this, so there are so many misunderstandings about these things, and so many. Um, I think that so many things have to, firstly, be, be put out loud, and then, and then, and then, etc. Et Thanks, Anna. There are two more questions: one by Filippa and one by Dana. And if there is time, I have a question myself. But uh, uh, Filippa first. Thank you. And thank you so much, Anna, for uh, such a rich presentation. And especially after Catherine's talk, which I also loved, it was great to just think about these things together. And I just want to like say, I mean, I have a comment and then, and then a question. I, I, I guess as a comment, I, I, I just want to say that this idea of feminism as bourgeois really speaks to what was also in Catherine's talk of, you know, this idea of woman as standing in for something um, for this like broad, for, for a myth, right? And a myth through which, you know, I think Beauvoir at some point 
in the second sexus exactly that um, woman as other is a summary, is taken to be a summary of her era, right, of, or of her society, right? And so you can really see these, um, both in Catherine's presentation and yours, um, this way in which uh, talking about women and and the figure of woman becomes like this vehicle for talking about nation and talking about like the society, which is really interesting. And um, I guess my question um, that I was really curious about was you, you made this really interesting distinction about actresses and the movies that they play in. And um, I, I found that very really compelling. So something is going on, for example, in Bardot um, about her public persona. That's also a reaction to, say, the character of Juliette in in Ducrey à la Femme, right? And there's there's a, a, a very interested dynamic dynamic in the way um, that sort of plays out. Um, so I was wondering what kind if there's any sort of um, interesting trends in cultural production in the movies that these uh, actresses in the Balkans are, are sort of starring in that are kind of, you know, um, they're in the mix as well uh, and like um, getting this reaction. Why are people sort of talking about these actresses and their sort of public personas as actresses? Is there something going on kind of like Bardo's movies um, in, in Balkan cultural production lately? Um, that's something I would sort of be interested in hearing more about. Thank you very much for your question. Um, uh, well, I, I'm not sure if something is happening. I think that capitalism is happening, you know, because um, we should have we should keep in mind that I am I'm going to say it for the whole Europe, but okay, maybe it is like uh, go, saying too much. But in in the Balkans, in Croatia, of course, um, it, it is a, a politics and it is the government that actually uh, makes decisions on movies. You know, so this popular, so this like uh, artistic production uh, uh, of that kind of art was always under the under the um, patronage, let's say, of the government, and uh, um, the government was actually, in a way, by financing, choosing what kind of uh, what kind of femininity wants to see in 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 the movies, and of course with the um, with the um, let's say with uh, after the war, after the poverty, after the many things that, after the old, this ideology of constructing a nation. And you have to keep in mind that constructing a nation is, is always something that is concentrated on women. You know, there is always, you know, women, men die for nations and women give birth for nations. So this is very interesting. And, and of course, in the 90s, you had to build the nation, you know, and women had to be, uh, uh, productive in every possible way, but um, uh, the most important way of their produ productivity was, uh, uh, of course, their, 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 their uteruses. So um, I have colleagues doing some research, you know, probably about the, this Bedell test, feminist test of movies, and, and they did a, a cute little research showing that in most of uh, Croatian films, uh, there is no women. Uh, and uh, in 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 those there are they usually are angels or or uh, horse. There is no like in between. So uh, I think that movies, in a way, were more traditional. That actually, let's say the the 
the, the public is, especially in the cities, especially in, in uh, educated communities. So I think that, yes, there is a discrepancy between the, the movies and the, the politics of the movies, ideologies of the movies, and uh, 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 messages of the movies, and the way these women are actually living their lives. And because of today's way of presentation uh, of, our, uh, of public people's lives, they are uh, in a way uh, pushing through this image of a Croatian actress, you know, they are presenting other kinds of life that are in great discrepancy to, to their movie characters. Um, and of course, things are changing. Like I said, capitalism brought changes. So, uh, and, and government is not anymore so interested in, in what's happening in the movies. So that actually gives some freedom to some other kinds of femininity, some other kinds of, um, let's say, steps towards a more equal representation of women and men. And, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Anna, go ahead. Great. Uh, thank you, Anna, for this wonderful presentation. I really appreciated the way that you are articulating Beauvoir's sort of discussion of the other as, I think you said, um, the sort of ontological foundation for the epistemic problem of not recognizing another's experience. And for me, and I'm, maybe this is also <laughs> just um, me being uh, coming out of the University of Oregon, but part of what the discourse in the United States has been with the Me Too movement has actually come from uh, the U former UO psychologist Jennifer Fried and her discussion about institutional denial. And so I think that what you're talking about, the way you're flushing out Beauvoir, really it resonates, I think, with what she's talking about in terms of denial and her kind of Darvo thesis, but then she also offers this idea of institutional courage um, as a kind of antidote to this kind of denial. And I was curious if, um, I guess I wanted to invite you to share, you know, what you think institutions, individuals within institutions might be able uh, to do or to take that, that would be in the vein 